After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? Pas te dire ce que tu peux faire pour moi. Tu vas voir, c'est pas compliqué. Tu me parles pas. Tu me poses pas de questions. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I am your host, Becky Shrimpton. And with me, once again as well, is the executive director of Lyft. That is the liaison of independent filmmakers in Toronto. Chris Kennedy is with me. Hey, Chris, how you doing? I'm, I'm doing good. Thank you. Good, good. Thank you for joining me for part two. We've got a bunch more great movies to check out. People can go back and listen to part one, which we released last week, to hear a little bit more about Lyft and what you guys do and and who you are. So the two movies we talked about last week, beautiful, but possibly a little challenging for some viewers. This next one that you recommended is a freaking delight, and I was so glad to find it. It's called Honey Moccasin. It's from 1998. It's by Shelley Nero. Tell me a little bit about this one, Chris. Oh, it's a it's a it's a great one. I mean, this was made in the in 1998 and it stirs a lot of people that uh, have kind of gone on to other things one of the reasons i pointed out not partly because it's, it's a great piece but also because when i was preparing for this these episodes i was listening to other rcmp uh, podcasts and one of the ones i listened to was the, the cfc one the canadian film center's interview and you know there was a lot of talk about gatekeepers and the fact that um you know to uh to raise money to make a big film um, you had to you had to go through a bunch of different gatekeepers that are just inherently part of the industry. And uh, for better or for worse, that's what the life is. One of the things that I like to st- stress about Lyft is, you know, we're not a gatekeeper. We're there to empower people to make films and just give them the ability. If they find some money, it could be a small amount of money, it could be more, they can work with us. And I think that really... Um, speaks to a lot of the kind of the diversity of films that came through Lyft over the years. And I'm proud when we look back to see that there's stuff like uh, uh, Shelley Nero's Honey Moccasin or Jorge Manzano's uh, Johnny Gray Eyes, films in the late 90s, early 2000s that were made by First Nations filmmakers when, you know, there wasn't a heck of a lot of uh, support. APTN was just starting out around that period of time. Uh, Imaginative Media Arts Film Festival was just starting around that time, but there were still so many gatekeepers that would prevent the people from from working, and and so to have something that was enabled partly by Lyft makes me proud. And looking through the, you know, the list of credits, you know, even in the technical stuff, like people like Marcos Ariaga, Ali Kazimi, who worked, uh, uh, who shot the film, who helped, uh, they both shot, they worked on shooting the film, and and uh, you know, seeing that uh, the equipment was uh, made possible by Lyft just really made me think uh, that we have a good history. And so Shelley Nero made Honey Moccasin. She's she's a visual artist One of my with a great sense of humor. One of my favorite pieces by her is um, called The Shirt, which was where she has a t-shirt that says, my ancestors were annihilated, exterminated, murdered, and massacred, and all I got is a shirt. And so... That's so twisted. <laughs> it is twisted. And I think that's really... Uh, that sense of humor comes across in Honey Moccasin so so well. She's, she's a Mohawk. Uh, she sets us on kind of this fictional uh, reservation, Reservation X, and it's kind of a mix of um, 
styles. There's performative queerness that's uh, really interesting. There's this performative element that's really uh, interesting. Rebecca Belmore, the performance artist, is in the film as a giant tent. So it's uh, a 47-minute kind of gem of uh, pure kind of humor and a, a humor that, that's, that has an edge to it, right? You know, that makes us think about stuff. One of the things that we always have a challenge on in this show, to be completely honest, is when we try to get people to bring Indigenous film on the show, there's a lot of it that's very difficult to watch. I mean, it's not exactly a glowing history of indigenous people in Canada, right? So when when films are made, it's often difficult, yeah, difficult, challenging subject matter that is not necessarily a lot of people's favorite film, even though they may appreciate it. Uh, Honey Moccasin is hilarious and bizarre and it's just the tantu cardinal performance i mean first and foremost on this show we will watch anything tantu cardinal is in because she's the best two she is smart and sexy and funny and has a sailor moon transformation and you're just like what am i watching and how did she not become a bigger star way before this point it's it's and it's such a beautiful showcase for her and her performance as well as all the other performers within it yeah and she's she really is a standout and uh you know it is this uh it's kind of Battle of the Bar is kind of a, a storyline, you know, two different uh, venues duking it out on, uh, on a local reservation to, to be the one that everyone wants to go to. And then there's this kind of fun tattoo place this uh, really, really, yeah, as you said, a really interesting character that um, just draws us in as someone we can re- relate to, but uh, learn from. And then she's also so very giving to the, the guy that she's, uh, who's trying to basically steal our clientele and also steals other things in the story. But um, there's this really lovely kind of interplay of knowing each other, right? You know, when you know someone that's pissing you off, you know, there's a certain amount of forgiveness to that. <laughs> you know, you've, li- you've lived with this person for, you know, 25, 30 years, you know, their family, you know, where they come from, and you kind of wish they would shape up, but you know, you're going to be a little bit forgiving all the same. It's very tongue-in-cheek. Like, on one hand, it is this, like, adorable little detective story where uh, Tantu Cardinal is this sleuth trying to find out who stole the costumes for the powwow. And then there's also the Battle of the Bars going on. But there's also all of this biting, cutting satire within it. Think of the other bar owner who's talking about how, well, we have a history of diabetes and the Asians are really doing things well. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And I think that's also points to the fact that every community has their own... Um, ways of talking about things that, you know, aren't necessarily, you know, the best way people should be talking about things. We all, there's a, there's a, an element of always, we could all do better. Let's just say that. (laughs) Now, now you mentioned Shelley was an artist, but she also went on to make two more films, features that did incredibly well, uh, Raised by Lightning and The Incredible 25th Year of Mitzi Bearhunter. But there's a big gap in between this one and those two films. Do you know what the the holdup was? I would blame the, uh, those uh, gatekeepers, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know specifically. uh, And obviously she's been a fairly active artists at the same time but as you guys were talking with the cfc cast like sometimes it takes 10 years to get a film off the ground and it shouldn't but it does i think that's very much the case here like i mean i'm sure she would have rolled into a longer piece if she had a chance uh, earlier on but uh, we just people were not enabled to that to the extent that uh, they could be and uh, i think it's definitely harder for someone like Shelley Nero whose work i mean honey moccasin is great absolutely um, there's nothing about it that uh, doesn't say that she can do other things other big things but you know it is unconventional to, for lack of a better word and often the uh, uh, the industry plays it safe um, you know there's not a lot of resources to go around and so people go for the conventional stuff first and 
they go for people they know and they hard for someone like uh, Shelley Nero in 1998 to build this into a breakout hit, right? People would have recognized Tantu from Dances with Wolves, but like, you know, how much more resonance is that going to have? Is Because I I mean, she didn't get her first leading role until two years ago, two years ago, which is just yeah. bananas. Of course. I mean, I mean, that just, yeah, I mean, I'm just saying that underlines what we're talking about. Then what was the resonance of this film? What kind of a splash did it make for her? I remember when I was in the uh, attending the early days of Imaginative and I worked at V-Tape, which has a large um, uh, large collection of uh, First Nations uh, and Indigenous uh, video art. I remember Tantu was already treated with resonance, you know, back, uh, reverence back then. You know, she was already a pillar of that community. It's just sometimes people don't pay attention to smaller communities and what who their who their heroes are. So, but I know that Honey Moccasin is considered a touchstone for many Indigenous artists. They, uh, you know, it resonated uh, quite a lot because partly because of, you know even at that point Shelley Nero was established artist to a point people knew who she was when she made this and you know and I think this is important for from a less perspective sometimes it's just these are kind of signposts for people along the way to say oh they could do that i can do this they can do that i can do this and so this is honey moccasin i think is is one of those films that uh, enabled people just by existing and it's one that to this day i remember how important it was back then it's just so effortlessly cool which is a very weird thing to say about a very strange film but there's just so many moments where you're really seeing the even though it's wacky and it's zany there's these these clever moments where you're looking at community through a very specific lens so i think of mabel moccasin yeah. performing her uh, her amazing uh, her amazing rendition of fever or as all these images are broadcasted on her and it's neat to watch and then the camera pans across the deeply bored audience yeah. <laughs> who are not connecting at all. And it's yeah. fabulous. But I think that's such an interesting thing to put in an experimental film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get, we, we aren't for everybody, but who we're for is going to love this. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's easy to be effortlessly cool when you don't worry about fitting in. Yeah. And sometimes when you're not allowed to fit in, you don't even worry about fitting in. Right. And so that's, I think that's where being cool comes from. It's like, you know what? You're not going to let me do my thing. With you, I'm going to make some cool stuff elsewhere. And you're going to learn about it later. <laughs> <laughs> There's that great uh, Zaphod Beeblebrock's quote from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where he he has to take the test to become one of the, like, the gurus of cool. And they, they take you into the room and you have to pick like the coolest outfit. And uh, the correct response is, the coolest outfit is whatever it is I choose, not yes. just picking through. It's the same thing. It's great. Yeah, I try and tell my son that. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not cool because you're dad. I'm sorry. Mm, yeah. It's just inherent. Yeah. Yeah. So tell people how they can find this one. Well, this one actually is easily found online. Again, you Honey Moccasin, uh, Shelley Nero, it's on Vimeo. Um, so I did a quick search and it's I think it's put up by the artist or someone else uh, like that. The next one that we're going to be talking about, Chuka, I required the background information to be able to yeah. piece together exactly what I was looking for. So uh, tell us a little bit about Chuka. OK, well, a little background information in general about um, four or five years ago. Um, we were approached by the son of Jacques Madvo. And Jacques Madvo was this um, filmmaker who, in the 60s and 70s and early 80s, traveled around the world with a Bolex camera, a 16 millimeter wind up camera, and filmed various things that were happening. And he would come back and he would make documentaries for uh, TVO. And those documentaries were called uh, People in Places. 
Um, and so those were, it was a series. And so people in places, it would be like Spain, people in places, Iran, nice kind of um, portraits of the, the countries at the time. He passed away about four or five years ago and his son, Denis Madvo, um, contacted us and uh, because he wanted to sell us some equipment and we went to his place his his mom's place and and looked around and and not only was there some cameras that were really interesting to buy but uh there was this whole room of uh footage uh this was these were outtakes from the documentaries that he had made as he traveled the world and so we had outtakes from all these films basically film footage of the world in the 70s and i made an agreement with uh Denis, that uh, we would be temporary kind of stewards of this material and that we would try and get a commissioning grant from the Canada Council uh, to commission artists to make films based on this footage. And so we, and we were successful at that and we were able to commission 10 filmmakers to go back into the archives and make films um, that resonated with with the footage and, that we found. And so for us, that's kind of a very exciting kind of a thing, because for one thing, it speaks of part of our interest, analog film, analog film. It's not like you can walk into a room and say, oh, there's your dad's hard drive from 25 years ago. Can we take the footage and make a digital movie out of it? Uh, you'd be very lucky if you were able to attach it to your computer right, and open it up. But, uh, but here we were with these physical kind of copies of, of this history. And so, and so one of the films, all of the films that came out of it were great. Um, but the one I uh, shared with you this time um, is Chuka, and it's by a trio, Faraz Anishapur, his sister Peristu Anishapur, and uh, their partner Ryan Furkov. So the three of them have been making uh, films for the past six to eight years, maybe a little bit longer. They're again, visual artists who also work in film, they took, they were really interested because Faraz and Peristu are Iranian, they were interested in, in the footage that was shot in Iran. So they were particularly interested in this paper factory that uh, was that Jack Badlow spent some time at, partly because there was um, obviously some Canadian connection as well. There were some Canadian um, flags and stuff like that. And so they went back uh, to Iran with the footage that we had scanned and um, they tried to get a little bit of a history of the, uh, of uh, the area, Galan, to try to get a sense of um, what this paper factory would have been, what the connection would have been to Canada. And, and, uh, and they kind of come back with this really interesting film that kind of mixes. Um, there's a little bit of uh, early Adam going in it as well towards the end, but there's kind of this next mix of Iran and, and, and where it is. And, and, uh, uh, and so I'm, I'm particularly proud of that piece, partly because we had, you know, more of a hand in it than most films that come through left. Often we're just um, a place that rents equipment or supports people. But this was a one where we actually commissioned it and, uh, and they, they made a really brilliant piece out of it. It's a really interesting little snapshot of a piece of history that Canada happened to be a part of that most people, I'm sure, know absolutely nothing about unless they had a family member that was associated with it. But when a country is overtaken in one way or another, there's a coup or like a revolution or something happens, you don't realize how many people are actually affected. And this is a really interesting revisitation of that and what the world is like now after that. For outsiders to come in and talk to locals about what happened in their communities and how things are now. And and the way it ends, which is really fascinating of, of uh, having a child walk you through the, the way the home looks, that it was just such an intriguing way of approaching history. No, that final um, section I mean, is really fascinating as well. And, and 
because one of the things that they realized is, um, you know, as they made the film is Gilan was actually a place where people would come in Iran to make films. And so the house that they're staying at is a house that also hosted the production of a, another film, an Iranian film. And so that family was kind of used to being used to being a host for filmmakers. And then, you know, in some ways you can wonder about the kid who, as I said, is, is basically showing surveillance footage of the uh, backyard of, of the house, kind of how he is absorbing the idea of filmmaking, of image making, and, and um, how the I, the images from uh, 1973 connect with the images made today, connect, connect with the images this child may, may, may make in the future. When you found all of this footage, what else did, was created with it? There were 10 films, and each person kind of took on... Um, country in, in many ways. So there was a, a filmmaker who made a piece about Israel using footage that uh, was shot there. There's a, a young younger filmmaker, uh, Rola Tahir, who was born in Kuwait, uh, but uh, is now lives in Canada. But she was, they left Kuwait during the first Gulf War. And so she took uh, footage that was made in shot in Kuwait and um, used used it as a um, a way to kind of look at her absence of memory. She says that she's not able to remember a lot of things and that's not trauma or anything. That's just, she just doesn't have the memory that other people might have. And, and so, uh, so she had uh, uh, used that footage as a way to kind of work through um, a memory of a place where she's from, but she has really no memory of. And then there's a really nice piece by um, uh, filmmaker Francie Duran, who reworks bullfighting footage into this kind of really lush and disturbing uh, film about uh, our interactions with um, uh, with animals and and uh, uh, kind of the pose of masculinity that something like bullfighting allows and, and and again kind of an immigrant experience as well because you know bullfighting is is Spanish but it's also practiced in many of the Spanish speaking countries and. Uh, uh, Francie, who's from Chile, bullfighting would have been kind of a, a historical part of her her heritage as well. That's so interesting because we've been talking about how influential a lot of experimental film can be, even just in terms of visibility of someone seeing, oh, they made this, I can make this. And so the idea of taking someone else's footage that was not necessarily meant to be put in narrative film or even in um, narrative documentary and reinterpreting it into someone else's story, history, experiences of the world is really compelling. Yeah. It's 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 a really amazing how kind and generous his son was to give us this footage to play with, and not to play with. Like I mean, we always uh, made a point of saying that this these these were a meeting of two artists, right? There's Jacques Madvo, the artist, and then the artist who took that footage and moved beyond it, and uh, either to create new things with the footage or to put their own footage beside it. Um, and I think that's it's a key part of going back to what I talked about a little bit last episode where the people in the ex experimental film community are, are investigating uh, what an image means and how it's constructed and, you know, what a history means. And, you know, as uh, a country like Canada, the image making is so foundational. You can't talk about Canada without talking about Grierson and the NFB and uh, CBC, you know, uh, our images are made, you know, if they're not made by independent filmmakers, they're often made by the government, <laughs> right? And, you know, and so it's such a part of the construction of who we are. You know, I feel like the experimental filmmakers that we've been talking about uh, have really worked hard to um, 
scratch a little bit of what we are and what that means to be who we are and what and how we form that in the images that we make. Uh, someone like Jack Bagville, who himself was an immigrant to Canada, making films about the world uh, that he would return to as a Canadian, his work being reseen and reworked by people who are largely immigrants again, making footage, working with ideas that come from where their original home was and where the footage's home was. It, it, become, it creates this kind of really lovely enfolding of you know history and how we um and how that history becomes what is canadian identity how is it possible for people to check out chuka as well as the other pieces you mentioned i mean they're still on the film circuit so as you know when uh short films are on the film circuit um it's harder to find them uh you know you have to because there's the whole thing about um premiere status and some of those aren't you know acquired by distributors at this point um uh, uh, most of the films are available through the Canadian Filmmakers Distribution Center, which you know might actually be a good uh, podcast topic for you in the future. But um, they have a, a viewing area, but um, the, they aren't widely available right yet because a film like Chuka, for example, like uh, they've shown in uh, prestigious places as the Sharjah Biennial and the um, and the New York Film Festival and the Vienna International Film Festival or the Viennale. Uh, so that film is still circulating in that kind of way. Um, but uh, hopefully hopefully, there'll be more possibilities for, uh, for your listeners to view it in the future. That having been said, how do people find your work with Lyft? How do people support Lyft? How do people join and access Lyft? How do people do this? Well, the easiest way, of course, is uh, we have a website. It's lyft.ca. Uh, we also, our physical location, we're at 1137 DuPont Street. The website tells you all about our activities, our workshops, uh, our fundraisers. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you want to become a filmmaker, um, we have all, as I, uh, we, we talked a lot about ex- uh, experimental film, but uh, this time around, but we are genre neutral like we support narrative filmmakers documentary filmmakers experimental filmmakers uh, support people who are working uh in digital film or analog film uh we have we're we're basically the sandbox that you might want so if you're a filmmaker listening to this and you don't have access to equipment and uh we might be the place you look for so again lift.ca is uh, the best starting point Um, and then it goes from there. Thank you so much for your time today, Chris. I really appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.